0: Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile, Chief Content Officer. And today, I thought we would start this episode in our deep dive on the history of fitness off with a few numbers, courtesy of the excellent and meticulous Nicholas Rizzo at the website runrepeat.com. In 2019, the fitness industry was valued at $159 billion. Yes, billion with a B which at the time was the most it had ever been valued at. When the pandemic hit in 2020, the industry then experienced a 32% decline. Not surprising, but still a painful number. Now, as I write this on February 16th, 2022, the fitness industry's valuation seems to be almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Online and digital fitness, fitness apps, fitness equipment, and fitness trackers all experienced significant growth in the pandemic. By 2028, the digital fitness industry is projected to have the highest growth rate of 33.1% per year. The classic brick-and-mortar gym, on the other hand, is predicted to grow much more slowly at a rate of about 7% per year. Now, let's dig into what A Sweat Life's own research has shown over the past few years. I promise this is all going somewhere. And as a side note, I highly recommend diving into Run Repeats Research Yourself, It's fascinating, well worth your time, and we'll link to it in the show notes. In 2018, respondents to our annual state of fitness survey spent an average of $125 per month on fitness, give or take a few cents. That number has consistently declined year over year. And then when the pandemic hit, that average among our audience dropped to $45 per month. That's around a 64% drop in monthly fitness spend among the people we surveyed which is a much steeper decline than what run repeats numbers showed. In the fall of 2021, monthly fitness spend as we surveyed it crept back up to around $51 per month, but that's still dramatically lower than the 2018 to 2022 years. Of course, the necessary caveats here are, we know that our audience is fitness obsessed. We know they're mostly millennial women in urban areas and all of those things affect their access and willingness to spend or save on fitness. So, bringing us back full circle to the point of this week's episode, you've got to follow the money. By tracking consumer spending on fitness, we can build theories about how that spend reflects the value our society places on physical activity, and the way our audience spends money on fitness is something we love to geek out about on a sweat life. In fact, I'll refer you to several in-depth pieces Gina has written over the years about the business of fitness, including some of her best work from when ClassPass ditched their unlimited model and consumers rioted. Because this is a topic we find so fascinating, the business of fitness, that is, we pulled in the big guns. Jason Kelly, chief correspondent at Bloomberg QuickTake, and the author of one of our favorite books, Sweat Equity, Inside the New Economy of Mind and Body. It's a portrait of the booming fitness economy, and it came out in 2016. Since then, Jason has come even deeper into understanding the world of private equity and public offerings, and he keeps a close pulse on how the fitness industry's money moves, so to speak. In this episode, you'll hear Jason and I talk about how the community aspect of fitness factors into making fitness a compelling investment, the successes of both high-cost and low-cost businesses, and the business of celebrity fitness instructors. And stay tuned for a bonus episode with Jason dropping later this week. Our original episode was recorded on February 3rd, and as you'll hear, we spent a good chunk of time talking about Peloton and their role as a pandemic fitness darling. Then I went on vacation, and all hell broke loose at Peloton. Jason was kind enough to jump back on the mic with me on February 16th, a week before the day this episode drops. So that we could process together what the heck is happening at Peloton and what that says about the broader state of fitness and the at-home fitness boom. Look for that in your feed in the next couple of days. And now, enjoy this podcast episode of We Got Goals with Jason Kelly on the business of fitness. Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by Asweatlife.com. And you are coming to us in the middle of our deep dive on the history of fitness. We're going in on where the fitness trends have started, how they've evolved over the years, the business of fitness, the future of fitness. And today we have with us Jason Kelly from Bloomberg to talk to us about his book, Sweat Equity, and what he has understood about the economics of fitness and all of the money that we may or may not see going in and out of the business every day. So Jason, we are so happy to have you. I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you.
1: Sure. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Big fan of your show and your work. You know, the, I guess the introduction to me is you mentioned my book, it, Sweat Equity, which came out a couple of years ago, which was very much, you know, as these things tend to be when they really work, it, very much a passion project. You know, I, I've i been a business journalist for. Longer than I care to admit, but probably about 25 years now, 20, 25 years. And I came to this subject very honestly from the perspective of always following the money as a business journalist, but also keeping in mind, you know, sort of what I was doing in, in my own spare time, but looking at everything through a business lens. And I was just fascinated by what was happening around me. And I feel like. The trend has only accelerated as your work has has shown uh, over and over again that we are, no matter what else is going on in the world, we're drawn to this notion of taking care of ourselves, taking care of our bodies, taking care of our minds. Uh, I think this is a an inexorable trend in that regard. And and again, the economics and the business underneath it is the most fascinating part to me.
0: Your book opens with. Uh, the story of Flywheel, which is fascinating to us, especially in this moment, because, you know, Flywheel is a a casualty of the pandemic. But back in 2016, when your book came out, they had just secured a lot of money. They were, you know, top two of the hottest cycling studios in the country. Um, I'd love for you to sort of share that origin story and, you know, why you sort of use that to kick off your book and what that says about boutique fitness as an industry
1: yeah I mean, it's it's funny, you know when you write when you write a book, you're trying to capture a moment in time, but you know, also, you know, hopefully with some sort of longevity and and toward the end of the book and and maybe we'll get to this, i uh, I get into this whole idea of like cheeseburgers and cupcakes and sort of what's lasting and and what's not. And um you know, flywheel was fascinating because it it did, I think, still capture this moment where we were at that point where we were flocking to collectively flocking to boutique fitness, you know, we were in this world where fitness was the new kind of gathering space, both physically and, and emotionally in, in many ways, it was a way that we were connecting with each other in real time, in real space, obviously pre pandemic. And, you know, there was an element of flywheel, which I was fascinated by that sort of spoke to this, to our current culture of, competitiveness and you know and and i think there are elements of it that we see and i bet we're going to talk about peloton at some point there are elements that we see that that creep up with peloton as it has its wild ride and and i think the other reason i was so fascinated by it is because there were interesting characters and also this influx of money which you know, in my business is the ultimate validator. You know, if you are able to convince venture capitalists or private equity folks or public investors or angel investors, whoever that is to back your idea, that's at least the first level of validation alongside obviously customers and whatnot. So it just, it felt like, you know, and, and, and I think it still is like a really interesting moment um, where we were. I mean, Wow, how the world has changed since then, and and yet I I feel like it's still instructive.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely want to earmark Peloton for a later discussion. We we have to give the listeners something to look forward to over the next thirty or so minutes. Uh, you touched on something just now about how like fitness places were becoming a third place, essentially the the not home, not work place where we meet to socially gather. Um, and I think a big recurring theme throughout your book too, is the community aspect of fitness where people, you know, find like-minded people, whether that's through a competitive class, like flywheel or through the, the running community, which you, you referred to a lot throughout your book too. Um, how, how does that factor that, that importance of community factor into what's made fitness, you know, a really interesting investment trend or has, you know, Made it us follow that money, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's the question. I mean, it, it's it's at the heart of all of this, and and I think, you know, as we think about the the more hybrid world today, community is still a part of that, even if it's often virtual. And and I think, you know, one of the things we have certainly learned over the past couple of years is how much, you know, not to get too like woo woo about it, but like how much we need each other and how much we really want to be around other people. You know, for me personally, and again, you know, also professionally, because I'm, you know, like you, I never quite turn off the sort of journalistic and and analytical side. You know, one of my aha moments was when I moved to New York from Atlanta to, you know, just outside New York city. And I became a part of this running club that, you know, brought a lot of different people together around this common interest it was a community that I wanted to be a part of that nurtured me in in many ways, but it also changed how I lived my life in in a lot of ways, and it changed me not just kind of physically and spiritually and emotionally, but also economically in the sense that like I was signing up for more races, mm-hmm. I was buying more shoes, I was buying the you know gear that I saw one of my friends running with, you know, I was buying my winter kit and my summer kit and all these different things. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things that is just true in business is this notion that if you can get a group of people and a growing group of people to buy into a concept, there's a lot of economic, like literal economic leverage there. You know, I write in the book about Lululemon and sort of Mm -hmm. the brand that it became largely because of this amazing aura that was and and i would argue remains around um that brand and i feel like that is just so intrinsic in the fitness world in many ways and the last thing i would say about that is fitness and and, and this is changing a little bit but certainly i think when you think about the economics of boutique fitness specifically it's a very affluent pursuit in, in many ways and i write a lot right. in the about how that has sort of played through for better and worse in terms of, you know, who the participants are and what the access is to, to these sorts of modalities, whatever they may be.
0: That reminds me of one of the concepts you talked about in your book. I, th- I think you would phrase it as like the barbell. So on, on one end is like the high-end, affluent, $35 a pop boutique classes, and then on the other hand is the, the planet fitnesses or the the ones that really are much more affordable and accessible from that point of view. Are there any on that other end of the barbell that you think are really intriguing right now um, or that are trending upwards in in terms of business, of fitness? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, Planet Fitness abides in many ways. You know, they're still out there. They're a publicly traded company. You know, I think in this um, You know, kind of stripped down world that many of us are, are living in. We all kind of made do with with a lot of different things uh, during the pandemic. I think running in some ways sort of falls into that category as well. You know, when done right, you know, you see um, Yoga, even at sometimes so you can have high end, but also you know much more affordable. I think technology has been this amazing equalizer in 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 that regard too. And so there's a lot of experimentations, as it were, with business models right now. You know whether it's social media based. We did a, a documentary. I was going to say earlier in the year last year um, that looked at kind of that looked at Peloton, but it also looked at Beachbody, and then it looked at this even more nascent trend, I think, of fitness influencers, essentially, who are using Instagram as their platform and using YouTube and all these different things to create a lot more access to it. I think there's another element to that, which I'm quite fascinated by as well, and I'm guessing you've explored too, which is making it accessible both economically, but also you know, ethnically and by race and not Mm -hmm. just having um, to speak very plainly, like just rich white folks, like Mm -hmm. doing, you know, doing all these exercises and, and also only people who have perfect bodies, you know, like really appealing to a broader set of people. That's another, I think, lesson that we've all been learning over the past couple of years. And so it's interesting to see that play through the the fitness world as well.
0: Yeah, I completely agree that that is something that we think about behind the scenes and on our, our website a lot is actively challenging the fact that fitness, whether it's boutique or whether it's, you know, a $10 a month virtual membership um, needs to be for more than just, you know, the rich white women who wear the, the Lululemon leggings and go to that very stereotypical yoga class. And to that end, I do think we're seeing some interesting influencers like democratize fitness in that way. You know, I think about Jessamine Stanley, who's black, queer, fat, and teaching yoga and has built like quite a following that way. Um she's exactly that, the
1: person I was thinking of. By the way, we can a documentary. I yeah, mean she she is, always like, is. out there. Yeah. She's great.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that you think companies, you know, who are maybe looking to invest in fitness or on the flip side, fitness minded companies need to be thinking about in terms of, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion efforts, or is there anything that makes a fitness brand more attractive? in in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it I think increasingly people are demanding that whether it's instructors or whether it is, you know, fellow participants that there are people who look like them, talk like them, they feel comfortable around, you know, that it's not this sort of someone on a literal or figurative pedestal. Speaking to them, um, you know, I think when you look at um, when you look at something like Peloton, you know, they have really widened the aperture. I think over the past few years, and and have had to in order to grow their audience to have people of, I mean, look, everyone who's instructing on Peloton is fit, obviously, but they're not. They don't all look the same. You know, they have you know people from different backgrounds, and 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 I think you have to lean into that at, at, at this moment I think we're seeing this you know I I also think and write and talk a lot about professional sports teams and professional sports leagues it's a huge issue right now for pro leagues as well I think the NBA has done a much better job than say the NFL of creating a product that not only features but is organized and run and owned by you know, people of, of diverse backgrounds and opinions and, and all of those things. And I, I just think that we're, we're not in a mindset collectively to really put up with anything else.
0: Right. Th- things have changed and the, the toothpaste can't go back in the tube. <laughs> uh, y- you mentioned Peloton, so let's go ahead and, and get into it. Um, Peloton, I don't believe, is mentioned in, in your book, which came out in 2016. So they were just, I think their studio in Chelsea opened in like 2015, maybe, 2014. So they were brand new on the fitness scene. Um, We are very interested in them from a sweat life. We've been lucky enough to chat with some of their instructors for our podcast. I'm interested from a personal project standpoint where I'm just diving more into the language that they use and how they market themselves. But um, no one is, everyone that I know has been sending me Peloton stock prices and being like, oh my gosh, they're flipping out. They are completely bugging. The rails are falling off. Is that true? What do you think?
1: So I'll go back to where you started, which is that the fact that it's not included in my book and and I will own what I was thinking at the time, which was, this is a stupid idea. (laughs) It's not going to work. Like, totally. Like, and I've said that to people at Peloton. I have written it. I've talked about it. Um, I didn't think it was going to work in part because I really felt at that moment in 2015, 2016, when I was writing the book, that we were sort of coming out of our homes in many ways. And and, and I was really sort of bought into this idea. What I didn't anticipate in the interview, what happened in the intervening years is this collision in a very positive way. I think we would agree of community and technology, you know, Mm -hmm. and the, and I think the intimacy and connection that Peloton and other online fitness or other sort of virtual, however you want to describe them at home fitness, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's tonal or hydro beach body mix fitness, you know, many others mirror is an interesting example of that, you know, especially with their, their acquisition by Lulu. I did not see. I I didn't see it coming. I I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think it was going to happen. And obviously, no one in 2016 anticipated a global pandemic that would, you know, put us put us all in our homes. Um, I mean, Peloton, I think, will continue to be one of the most fascinating stories of our time, and and such an emblem of kind of where we were, where we are, and and ultimately, I think, where we're going. Um, You know. The whole concept of Peloton as a public company, I think, very much informs the way we think about it. And because it and this is the the business journalist and me talking, it's the scorecard that you can see every day. You you, You know, you can see what the sentiment is like tick by tick by tick, day by day you know wild swings you know you and i are talking on a day where you know the market opened up today and meta the parent of facebook is down 25% it's losing tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in its market cap mark zuckerberg alone on paper is down you know 20 billion dollars i mean th- these but th- these are the things that are reactions to earnings reports and bad forecasting or bad planning and whatnot you know in my mind the underlying idea of Peloton and some of its competitors remains sound. I, I, I you know, I was on my Peloton this morning, full confession. Um, yeah. and the day before and the day before and the day before, you know, I've had the bike for four years, almost four years. And I am on some weird, like 185 week streak or something, you know, it's like, you know, I'm on it all the time and I I engage with the app when I travel and things like that. So I think as a concept from a content perspective, from an engagement perspective, it's still really sound. What is that company actually worth from a market cap perspective and from a stock investor's perspective? I, I think the market is still trying to, to, to figure that out. The wild swings, I think, obscure in many ways, the, underlying idea uh of it and and it sort of speaks to i think what i the the ultimate conclusion i come to in my book spoiler alert which is like as we talked about at the beginning like the the mega trend is sound you know that like You're not going to five years from now invite me on to a podcast that your new podcast to talk about the joys of smoking. You know, like, we're not going to go back and be like, you know, what's awesome? Like, really being unhealthy and like not thriving in your, you know, physically and, and emotionally. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see for Peloton whether they're able to shift into shift successfully into even more modalities as it were. I mean, they had higher, clearly higher hopes for the tread Mm -hmm. and have materialized. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there were long rumors that they were going to get into rowing. Um, You know, they're looking at more kind of strength type classes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And That to me, this is a very long answer to your question, but like that speaks to, to me, to, one of the biggest challenges that faces any company, which is figure out where your consumer wants to go next before they even know what they want. Right. Um, and, and that's a big, that, that's a big challenge. It's a huge yeah. challenge.
0: Yeah. I I've heard rumors, you know, they just recently debuted a boxing program and held their first live programs. And I've, I've seen a lot of wish lists of my friends on the internet saying if Peloton, you know, creates a, a smart boxing program, punching bag, which it exists but hasn't really taken off in the same way. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Fight Club, maybe something like that. Um so yeah, I see what you're saying. But it's I feel like it's important too for, you know, the the heart of the company was that content creation and the studio and the bike was like the shiny package that it came in. So I guess the the question for Peloton then becomes like how do you create that same experience but shift it to different Shiny shiny packages, um. yeah,
1: yeah, it, it is and and there is something, I mean, again, just speaking of my of my personal experience, I wasn't a big spinning guy, like mm. that wasn't my thing. I was not a soul cycle devotee. I'd done it, I wasn't a flywheel guy. I, I had done it. Um, there is something very compelling about a, a relatively simple machine, but to your point, content that is constantly refreshed i think they're you know i've i've had a chance as well to interview a number of their instructors and i mean these are they're legitimate celebrities like they are stopped on the street you know Mm -hmm. i mean people know who they are uh across america and, and across the world and you know with hundreds of thousands if not millions of people you know depending on on what the engagement is on the app and whatnot there is a real um you know there's real value to that as long as they can keep creating um compelling content.
0: Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more. There've been some some really interesting pieces lately about the celebrity fitness instructor today. You know, we we've come a long way from from Jane Fonda um being the <laughs> the celebrity fitness instructor of the past. Um and you know, notably Peloton's instructors have become I don't know if you would call it A-list, but like B-list celebrities for sure. Probably A-list celebrities in New York. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is because we had forced intimacy with them during the pandemic. You know, we build these these parasocial relationships and it's so interesting to sort of analyze each of them as a business case study, right? Like you have several of them signed. I think Day is signed with Nike now. Like they are sponsored athletes and they are their own business. At the same time, they're temporary in a sense, right? Like they're not always going to be Peloton instructors. So to that sense, Peloton is always on the hunt for the next talent and, you know, building that that funnel, which is, this is all just my long-winded way of saying, what do you think about the business of celebrity fitness instructors and how they're sort of, you know, they're known for one thing, but they're sneakily diversifying their business portfolios this whole time.
1: It's such a great question. I mean, I think about this, all the time. And I don't know that, I don't know the answer to it. Um, You know, I had a chance to um on, on a documentary that we did last year about the, about the future of fitness. In addition to looking into Peloton, you know, I talked to Suzanne Summers, I talked to Billy Blanks, you know, of Tybo fame. And, you know, there is this category of folks like OG fitness instructors who have managed to in some form or fashion remain not just relevant, but, but very successful. Um, I think you're on, you're really onto something in the sense that the most successful correspondent instructors. you think about Ali Love, you think about Emma Lovewell, Day is a, a great example as well. Cody Rigsby being on Dancing with the Stars. I mean, I would, I would argue that that like elevated him in many ways, like it, and, transcended. um,
0: Oh, I bought stock in Peloton once they announced Cody Rigsby as, as a a dancer. I mean, that's not panned out yet well yet, but I was like, people are going to get to know this guy and see his personality and fall in love with him and at least maybe download the apps free trial.
1: Exactly. And, and so when you think about, you know, their social presences and all the different things that they're doing, they are clearly, you know, building, as you say, sort of like diversified portfolios and and empires for themselves. You know, as they, you know, many of them are very young. And so, you know, as they get older, you know, what are they able to do that, um, you know, keeps them relevant? They have an amazing platform in in Peloton right now. Um, You know, on the other hand, one of the early Peloton instructors, Jennifer Jacobs is now on the Beachbody platform. You know, are they ultimately, famous enough that to just use sort of a, a an inexact um word to sort of stand on their own maybe right. I, I don't know you know I think it I think that's going to depend in part on how we choose to consume this content mm-hmm. um going forward and you know I would imagine that it's something they as peloton instructors think about all the time and and, and any mm-hmm. other instructor and And I think you saw that um on a smaller scale and anecdotally, with the biggest soul cycle instructors, you know who had these like sort of cult, obviously much smaller followings because they needed those people to be physically with them. But, you know, people were subscribing, as it were, in terms of showing up or not showing up depending on on the instructor. So it's not a new concept as it were, but, the network effect of a peloton being the the biggest player out there is is massive. So I I'm fascinated to see where it goes.
0: Yeah, and I want to I want to eat my words quickly because you know as I was speaking I was remembering interviews I've done with people you know who are older than me. I'm a millennial, and they were saying you know they always take Jen Sherman's rides or Christine's rides because that's who they identify with. So I guess you you could probably reasonably predict that as the instructors who are this, like, A-list, you know, ally Love, etc. age, assuming they they stay on the bike, like, we will follow them because we're seeing people in our same life stages, you know, stick with this fitness routine. So... I I did want to clarify and say, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that once Peloton instructors hit 37, they have to age out. That's not, that's not the case.
1: Yeah, no, I think that, but I think it's a fair point. And I think it goes back to what, what we were talking about earlier in the conversation that, you know, what Peloton has had to do in terms of appealing to a wider and wider audience, because again, as a public company, as any company, like, you have to keep growing your your customer base. You have to keep mm-hmm. people. You have to retain your customers, and you have to find new ones. Um, and I think it's a it's a very interesting sort of business proposition. Mm-hmm. And, and that you know, it sort of speaks to this notion that it's a content company, it's a media company. Yes, it's a technology company. Yes, it's a hardware company. And you know, I think one of the things that makes Peloton both very compelling, but also sort of tricky to value and tricky to predict is that it is all of those things at once.
0: And, you know, as we're recording this in early February, you know, I'll ask you one last Peloton related question and then we'll get into some, some end matter. Um, You know, they've, they've been having some ups and downs. They're bringing in an external company to help. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I'm seeing is like the pandemic just accelerated their growth and they weren't quite ready for everything that hit. Um, So to that, would you say buy, sell, or hold? peloton stock on february 3rd noting that things will change all the time
1: you know i stay away from that only because i'm a um because
0: uh, there are receipts
1: <laughs> yes yes exactly um i i will not i i will respectfully decline to, to answer that question um i do think that it will continue to be a really important and interesting story for the things that we do um and I, I'm really interested to see where they go
0: next. Fair enough. Um, let's end with this. Let's imagine for a second that you had all the time in the world to write one last chapter in Sweat Equity that addresses something that is top of your mind today. What, what is that chapter and what's your argument?
1: <sighs> That's there, a there's a
0: lot question. of ways to go. <laughs>
1: That's such a good question. I we mean we can make it I, two
0: chapters if you want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really is it's everything we've been talking about around at home, really, honestly. I mean, I think it is taking into account everything we've seen in the last three years, factoring in not just at home, but factoring in where technology is going, the metaverse, all of these things what, it's the same question that I would have for our work life and our social lives and our family lives that are now so hybrid. You know, I'm, you know, as we as we talk right now, I'm coming into my office, which for 12 years prior to in New York, for 12 years prior to two years ago, I came into five days a week. And now I come in two to three days a week. Is that the, is that what's going to stick for, for me as a professional? Because if it is, that changes the way, If if I then narrow it down to a fitness world, that changes the way I think about my fitness. My relationship with my Peloton bike has radically changed, like radically changed obviously during the pandemic, but now is even different because... And you know, maybe my bosses are listening to this. I can take a break in the middle of the day and hop on my Peloton bike if I'm working at home, which I do. Mm-hmm. Full connection. Um, but I've been working since very early in the morning in those days.
0: But you don't have to justify it to us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but no, but I and and actually not justifying it, I think, is another really interesting element that so that would be sort of the other chapter, would not would be how has our relationship with broadly health and wellness changed given what we've all experienced over the past few years. And I'm I'm certain this is something you think about all the time as well, because we can't unring that bell uh, of knowing more and more about our own health, candidly, our own mortality. You know, we all became sort of virologists and immunologists and all of those things over the past couple of years. And so, you know, you think about, plant-based food. You think about all these sort of lifestyle elements that have pretty radically come to the fore in a way that they weren't, I think, before. I think we're moving that direction. And one of the arguments I made in the book, as you know, is that part of what really accelerated this trend was this recognition that this was a this was something we were and are, and not just something we do. And so this notion of a lifestyle, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, obviously here Um, you've created an entire business around, around that notion, but you know, I think that's a really important thing that has only become, and and I would imagine not to turn the tables on you, but in the time that y'all have been doing this, you certainly must've seen that as well. Like that Mm -hmm. whole notion accelerate that when you started this, It's probably like, yeah, yeah, this is a good idea. Like people Mm -hmm. are definitely talking more about this. And now it's just, it's, it's embedded.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, when we, Gina hates when we, (laughs) not hates, but when, when our website first started, it was straight up studio fitness reviews. And since then we have evolved to where like movement and fitness is maybe 20% of our coverage. You know, we focus on the whole life aspect of, of health and and what that means to our audience today, which, which changes quickly, slowly, and all at once at the same time.
1: (laughs) And, and I think these, you know, again, not, not to keep sort of beating this horse, but like this notion that there are, there are certain things when it comes to your health and wellness, whether that's physical or emotional or mental, that once you know, you can't unknow, you know, and I, think that yes, there are yes. certain things that, whether it's more time, you know, I have a young daughter. It's like, I have a hard time imagining not spending the chunks of time that I've spent with her over the past couple of years going forward. So that like informs something. And and like, if you sort of don't know what you didn't know, or now you know what you didn't know, like, it's just, it's a very, it's a very different calculus. And I think that plays through to everything we've been talking about.
0: Always moving forward. Jason, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I would love to give you a, a self-promotional minute to tell us where we can find your work. Uh, that documentary that you mentioned on the future of fitness sounds fascinating. I'd love to know where to find it. This is your your shameless plug.
1: Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we do a lot around the business of sports, very broadly speaking, um, at Bloomberg uh, through our Quick Take Originals series. So if you go to Bloomberg, if you just sort of search my name in Quick Take Originals, you can find just about everything. But I believe the website is bloomberg.com slash QT slash series, and you can uh, see all my work there.
0: Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Hey, listeners, Kristen from the future here. Remember to tune in later this week for a bonus episode with Jason discussing the more recent Peloton news. We'll talk about the layoffs, John Foley stepping down as CEO, that PowerPoint presentation that went public and much more right here on the We Got Goal Speed.